Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Jason Menes here. So glad to be with you guys here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Now, today is podcast 108. This is part five as we're looking at Friday of Passion Week. Now, in part four of last week, podcast 107, we ended by looking at the suicide of Judas. And there's a lot of tragedy there, obviously. And one of the things we are covering at the end of the podcast was about depression We don't know the state of mind fully of what Judas was going through, but given the circumstances, he felt that there was no other option but to take his own life. And that is never a good option for any of us. And so I was really hopefully encouraging people and wanting to speak truth that people are not to feel shamed if you are depressed or if you have a form of uh, acute mental disorder. Uh, We have to talk more about these kind of things and we are not to shame people. But we are to recognize, just like different parts of our body, people get sick. There are things that are wrong, particularly when it comes to the brain, the most powerful organ in the body. We have to be sensitive to that. So I pray that you've been encouraged. And if you are struggling, you haven't gotten help, that you would ask the Lord to, to, to lead you to the right people to get you the help that you need. So now on today's podcast, we are now transitioning to a period of time where Jesus is now taken before Pontius Pilate. Now, this is important because remember, up to this point... As we look at this seventh event on Friday of Passion Week, the the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin, have already convicted Jesus. Now they just got to get Pilate on board. So this is going to be the first civil trial where, of course, if you know the story, Pilate does not see what the Jewish leaders see, and he finds Jesus not guilty. And it's going to be this uh, cat and mouse game where he's going to send him to Herod, and Herod's going to mock Jesus and send him back to Pilate, and then Pilate's going to kind of give in to the Jewish people because his his life, his position is at stake here. If you go far back into the life of Pilate, there is some information we have and extra extra biblical sources that kind of give us a perspective of where Pilate was at at this time. So this is a very sensitive matter. Now, Matthew 27, verse 2, and verses 11 through 14, Mark 15, verses 1 through 5, and Luke 23, 1 through 5, and John 18, 28 through 38. So obviously John uh, is a very extensive in this account. But if you compile all four Gospels, you make one big narrative, and that's what I'm going to break down for you because there's a lot of information here. So I'm just going to jump right into John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28, where it says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. In Luke 23, verse 1, it says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. So here the Jews, they now take Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Remember, he rolled from AD 26 to 36, and they wanted Pilate to have him executed. Now, remember, Pilate normally lived in Caesarea, but during the Jewish feast, he would stay in Jerusalem, and he did that to keep the peace. And notice here it says they didn't enter into the courts area, the headquarters, so they would not be defiled. So it's ironic, again, that the Jews are, are more concerned about being unclean for Passover in the midst of them plotting to murder an innocent Jewish man. What did Judas do in the end when he realized that Jesus was never guilty from the beginning and now he's going to be executed? 
he took his own life. And this was not just any man that they were trying to find guilty. This was the Messiah. This is the one that their people should have been anticipating. And yet the very one that they were, they should be anticipating, they're anticipating to kill. So in John 18, verse 29 through 30 says, so Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation or what charge or wrongdoing in the judicial sense do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Now, notice Pilate rightly asks the Jewish leaders. Remember, told in Luke 23, the whole council comes there. So anything the last time that that occurred with Pilate, remember, he's there to keep the peace. And all of a sudden, all the top Jewish leaders of the temple and the Sanhedrin are there. And so, of course, this is stirring things up immediately. So he rightly, Pilate that is, he rightly asks them, why have you brought Jesus to me? And of course, notice the religious leaders, they evaded the question and they responded in a cheeky manner. So then Pilate responds to the Jewish people by saying to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, notice Pilate was not being fooled by the Jewish maneuvering here. Pilate was very aware of the Jewish people. If they already wanted a Jewish man to be killed first thing in the morning, that meant that they were breaking their own law by assembling during the night after sunset to find this man to be guilty. And so Pilate is already catching on to this. And so he initially rejects getting involved because, again, remember, he's there during Passover in Jerusalem normally he's in Caesarea, to keep the peace. The last thing he wants to do first thing on Friday is to have a Jewish person executed if he if he doesn't have to do that. But the Jewish people respond immediately by saying, it's not lawful for us to do this. You know this because the Romans gave us a certain degree of latitude, right, to exercise our laws. But one of the things that we can't execute is execution. But again, all of this is being played out according to what Jesus had spoken in the prophecy in which he was fulfilling. Remember, that's what John just said here in John 18, verse 32, that this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is why the Jewish people, this was fulfilling prophecy. Rather than stoning, Jesus was going to be crucified by the hands of the Gentiles, taking both the Jews and the Gentiles and, and finding them guilty for having the Messiah executed, but he was taking on the sins of the world. I like how the Bible knowledge commentary puts it. It says, quote, John explained why Jesus was delivered by the Jews to the Romans. Jewish executions were normally by stoning, which broke bones. The Roman method of execution was crucifixion. It was necessary for three reasons for Jesus to be crucified by the Romans at the, at the instigation of the Jews. To fulfill prophecies, number one, example, that none of his bones be broken. Two, to include both Jews and Gentiles in the collective guilt for the deed. And three, by crucifixion, Jesus was lifted up like the snake in the desert, based on John 3, verse 14, those teachings of Jesus. So a person under God's curse was to be displayed, meaning hanged on a tree as a sign of judged sin on account of Deuteronomy 21, 23 and Galatians 3, verse 13, end quote. So you see the significance that this all has to do in terms of prophecy. 
Now, Luke 23, verse 2 says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Mark 15, verse 3 says, And the chief priests accused him of many things. This is interesting, because if you go back to looking at the Jewish trial, when they all assembled together to have Jesus uh, found guilty, there was no mentioning of Caesar. And of course, these are Jewish people. They hate the Romans. Now they're using Caesar's name to, to try to strike fear into Pilate. Now, John 18, verses 33 through 38, notice what it says. So Pilate entering his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you really the king of the Jews? So here we see that Pilate was suspicious as to why the Sanhedrin was so adamant about turning over one of their own to the despised Jews. In verse 34, Jesus responds to Pilate, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So Pilate didn't have a high view of the Jews or their laws. It's very clear when you look at history and even what we can gather here in the accounts of the Gospels. And of course, every Roman, particularly someone like Pilate in his position, the Roman law was superior And these matters were a nuisance to him. So he wanted to get this over with. Now, again, did he know much about Jesus at this point? No, probably not. He probably heard a little bit of ramblings in this this Hiller kind of person. We know that when he goes to Herod, Herod heard of him and was intrigued about him, but had never met him. So again, they have little understanding. But again, in the presence of someone like Pontius Pilate, Jesus, who is a poor man who traveled abroad and he was a carpenter, He's looking at him and not really probably thinking this guy is anything special. So keep that in mind because in verse 36, Jesus is going to respond this way. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So this is probably confusing Pilate because he's looking at this poor, ratty, dirty man, again, who has been beaten up at this point. Uh, and so his his figure is pretty mauled at this at this stage, not to the degree, of course, that he's about to endure in the flogging, etc. But uh, this is probably causing Pilate to think about what is going on between the Jews and this man right now. So in this setting, remember the Jews, which are God's chosen people, they they believe themselves to be superior to the Romans. So the other thing you have here before Pilate is here you have this poor, dirty man who the Jews are rejecting, and he's talking about a kingdom that is not of this world, meaning it's even greater than the Jewish temple and greater than the Roman Empire. And so he's saying to Pilate, in essence, the way that he's translating it in that culture in the first century at this time as a Roman, I'm better than all of you. So Pilate now, being a Roman governor, he's feeling that he and his people are superior. Jesus is saying he's superior. The Jewish leaders want to get rid of Jesus because they think they're superior. So you have all this pride going on here, right? But the point is, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, remember, and when you read Philippians chapter two, he came in great humility. He took on flesh. And yet here he's declaring in humility that his kingdom is not of this world, that it's going to come. And he's putting it into context, the trivility of their earthly rulership. And yet at this stage, at this time in their mindset, of course, we're going to see in a minute, Pilate's thinking, I have the power to kill you. I have the power to do whatever I want. 
Caesar is the emperor. He's the most powerful person in the world. And you're talking about a kingdom greater than us. So when Jesus is saying to the Roman governor, my kingdom is not of this world, he's affirming that his rulership didn't interfere with Rome for his kingdom was not of this world. He's saying that I'm not talking about overcoming because remember a lot of times people put in context that he was just a Jewish zealot or that Jesus was a revolutionary person, that he was trying to overthrow Rome. And that's why he ultimately was crucified and he failed in his attempt to do that. But what Jesus is saying is, there's no interference, if you will, that my kingdom has with you directly right here, right now. He didn't come to be a Roman king. He didn't come to be a Jewish king, but he will nevertheless come again and establish his kingdom on earth. We know this according to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 28. And Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Now, in the New King James Version of the MacArthur Study Bible, he puts it like this, quote, By this phrase, Jesus meant that his kingdom is not connected to earthly, political, and national entities, nor does it have its origin in the evil world system that is in rebellion against God. If his kingdom was of this world, he would have fought. The kingships of this world preserve themselves by fighting with force. Messiah's kingdom does not originate in the efforts of man, but with the Son of Man forcefully and decisively conquering sin in the lives of his people and someday conquering the evil world system at his second coming when he establishes the earthly form of his kingdom. His kingdom was no threat to the national identity of Israel or the political and military identity of Rome. It exists in the spiritual dimension until the end of the age in Revelation 11, verse 15, end quote. So that puts things in perspective. But of course, the Jewish people are rejecting this. Pilate is certainly not going to understand that. So notice here in verse 37, then Pilate says to Jesus, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now, a couple things here. One, notice that Pilate responds dismissively, or he's very cynical about what truth is and about this whole situation regarding Jesus. If, if he doesn't see Jesus as a threat, he's saying, look, you guys take matters into your own hands. Of course, you can't execute this guy, but I don't see anything guilty. Whatever you found guilty in him, I don't see it. But by him taking Jesus in privately and having this discussion, he's beginning to compromise because he's taking on this matter. Because Pilate felt that he needed to do what was right with the Jews in order to avoid conflict or possible death by Caesar. The interesting thing is surrounding Jesus in all these accounts is that people care about their own interests. Whether, again, the case of Judas Iscariot, he wanted more money. He wanted to be on the, on the right side, supposedly, but yet all the while, really deep down, he realized he wasn't. Now, in AD 32, his protector, Sejanus of Rome, had been executed in, in an exposed pilot of many of his abuses. So again, remember, Pilate was not an honorable man. And so if his mentor person, if you will, his protector had passed away, or excuse me, was executed, uh, Pilate was on the line here. And so that's why he needs to handle this thing in a way that will please, if you will, Caesar. Now, this phrase here, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is a powerful statement. 
because it puts in perspective everything I said before. Who were these individuals who were listening to the truth of Jesus? Because in Jesus responding to Pilate and responding in, in, in few words though, but nonetheless had spoken many words and the Jewish people had heard, the Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, lawyers, scribes. He's pointing out the fact that up to this point now, after all that I've done, you guys have rejected me, meaning you are not people who are listening to the truth because you guys are blinded. You are rejecting the God of truth. And yet you guys are trying not to defile yourself. You're trying to be obedient to the law. You're trying to observe the Passover. And that goes to show you the blindness, the spiritual warfare that was taking place at to this point. Remember, Satan is not specifically mentioned, but you see his fingerprints all over this. In Matthew 27, now as we transition to the other, another gospel, Matthew 27, 12 through 14 says, but when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Mark 15 verse four says, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? And then back to Matthew verse 14, but he gave him no answer, not even a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. So this actually gives us insight into the humility of Jesus in the midst of Pilate attacking him along the lines of the Jewish leaders bringing these accusations uh, before Pilate. Because again, this was to fulfill what prophecy said in Isaiah 53 verse 7, Jesus was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So now we enter into the eighth event here on Friday of Passion Week, where Pilate is now going to send Jesus to Herod. And this is going to be the first encounter ship that Herod is going to have with Jesus. And this is found in Luke chapter 23, 6 through 12. And this is the second civil trial. So we pick things up here in verse 6 of Luke 23. When Pilate heard all that Jesus had shared, he asked whether Jesus was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping, that means he was looking forward with confidence, to see some sign or miracle done by Jesus. So this is interesting because you can now see Pilate's maneuvering around this, just like the Jewish leaders are maneuvering around Jesus and trying to get their laws to get Rome to follow their laws, to have him crucified. Uh, now Pilate, who, he doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. He doesn't care the outcome of Jesus. He cares about himself. And so he finds a way to then send Jesus to Herod. Now, if you remember Herod, Antipas, he covered Galilee and Perea and his headquarters uh, were in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. So like Pilate, Herod was also in Jerusalem. He was staying at the Hasmonean Palace during Passover. And this is an opportunity where Pilate is able to delegate this opportunity, hand this over to Herod as a gesture because he probably was aware of Herod's interest of Jesus. Now remember it says, for he had long desired to see him. Now let's go back a ways. One, you remember Herod had issues with John the Baptist and had him killed. 
And perhaps in one sense, he was curious about Jesus because of the relationship, one, that they were cousins, two, that Jesus probably reminded Herod of John the Baptist. Remember, Herod was afraid and he was fond of, of, of John the Baptist. But we're told also in Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 33, that at this very hour, it says in verse 31 of Luke 13, that some Pharisees came to Jesus and said, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus responds back and says, you go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today. And tomorrow on the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. That puts things in perspective to know that Herod was not just intrigued to meet Jesus, but at one point in his public Galilean ministry, he wanted Jesus killed. So notice here now in verse 9 of Luke 23, so Herod questions Jesus at some length, but he made no answer. Now this questioning that Jesus is undergoing with Herod, in the Greek it carries this idea of a semi-legal procedure. So he technically is questioning Jesus in a legal way, in a legal fashion. Now remember, Pilate had already found nothing wrong with what Jesus was doing, that he was innocent, and yet still he was sent to Herod unjustly. And they were told in verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated, that means they despised, they treated Jesus as worthless with contempt, and they mocked him, then arraying him in a splendid clothing, meaning a white robe, he sent him back to Pilate. So once again, here we see that Jesus, our Savior, the Son of Man, is mocked as the King of the Jews. And you see that in, in referencing in Matthew 27, verse 28, and John 19, verses 2 through 3. And Herod and Pilate now, we're told in verse 12, they become friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. So Pilate and Herod... They entered into an alliance because of this. So we now enter into event number nine, where Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate for a third civil trial, where again, he's not guilty, but he's scourged and then eventually crucified. This is found in Matthew 27, 15 through 30, Mark 15, 6 through 20, Luke 23, 13 through 25, and John 18, verses 39 into chapter 19 up to verse 16. So once again, you can see that the gospels give a lot of credence and information during this particular time when Jesus stands before Pilate one last time. So we'll take one big narrative and mesh these passages together and make better sense. So we start in Matthew chapter 27 in verses 15 through 16, where it says, Now that at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, Mark 15 verse 8 says, And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. So it seems a crowd arrived at the Praetorium. This is the palace forum, while the chief priests and the rulers were still at Herod's palace. And it's likely that this crowd was the workings of the Sanhedrin to stir things up by demanding that Pilate release a prisoner other than Jesus. So they're employing some other tactics. Now, Mark 15, if you look at verse 7, it says, Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder and the insurrection, there was a man called 
Barabbas. So we're told in Matthew that he was a notorious prisoner, but Mark gives us insight that during an insurrection, again, Barabbas was being used to try to overthrow uh, the Romans, and he committed murder in the process. So the Romans had arrested Barabbas, who seems to have been a zealot or a freedom fighter awaiting execution for murder and robbery in John 18, verse 40. Now we look at Luke chapter 23, 13 through 16, and then Matthew 27, 17 through 20, to see how Pilate responds to all of this. Notice in the account of Luke, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he says to them all, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Based on Luke's account, we see that he is responding to the people and he's giving them three reasons ultimately as to why he's just going to punish and release him even though he shouldn't be doing that. But he doesn't find anything guilty of him. His wife told him not to have anything to do with Jesus because she had a dream And even Herod himself found nothing guilty of Jesus. Now, when you look at Matthew's account in chapter 27, 17 through 20, notice it says, Pilate said to the crowd, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas? Now, remember who Barabbas is, or Jesus who is called Christ. And John 18, 39 says the same thing. So Pilate poses the question to either free Jesus, Barabbas, or Jesus called Christ, and he, I think he does this because when you do look at the original language, it's Jesus Barabbas and then Jesus called the Christ. And I think he did this to confuse the crowd and possibly expose the Jews' plot to overthrow Rome. Because if you think about it, if Barabbas, if Jesus Barabbas, that is, was a known insurrectionist and was already in prison awaiting to be executed, why would he free somebody like that particularly? when they're accusing Jesus of doing something like what Jesus Barabbas was doing. So I think Pilate was trying to, again, trying to maneuver around this. In verse 18, it says, For Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. So Pilate saw right through the scheming of the Jewish leaders and thought that the crowd would favor Jesus over Barabbas. Now we're told in verse 19, besides while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, having nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now I believe looking at the account before us, I believe that this happened prior to Pilate going before the crowd and the chief priests, that she preemptively came to him in Luke 23, 13, roughly around that time, and says, let this thing go. Now, remember, in those days, people took dreams very seriously. So you have all these things going in Pilate's mind. He's confused. He doesn't know what to do. And then in verse 20, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So although the Sanhedrin despised many of these insurrectionists and all of these zealots of the day, they conspired with many in the crowd to ensure that Jesus, the Christ, was going to be crucified and Jesus, Barabbas, would be set free. In Luke 23, 18 through 19, it says, But they all cried out together, Away with this man, meaning Jesus, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. So the crowds, they give in 
to the wishes of the chief priests, and they want to see Jesus the Christ crucified. Now, in verse 20 of Luke 23, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. Matthew 27 and verse 21, the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. So Pilate attempts a second time to try to vindicate Jesus and let him go. Now, Matthew 27 or verse 22 says, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. In Luke 23, verse 21, they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Then in Luke chapter 23, 22 through 23, Pilate a third time said to the crowd, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. They were told in John 19, verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him. Matthew 27, 27 through 30, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion up to 600 soldiers before him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe, which was an outer cloak of a Roman soldier on him. And they, by twisting it together on a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. So after Jesus here is severely beaten and scourged, he's taken into Pilate's official residence and there, with hundreds of Roman soldiers, they gather around him and they mock and they ridicule him as king. This uh, gesture of putting a reed into his right hand, the scepter may have been a bamboo stick, and this was used in the flogging of prisoners. So they're taking weapons and they're putting it in Jesus's hand after they already beat him with it. And they're just mocking him. And they were told in John 19, 4 through 12, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So here Pilate, he presents Jesus to the crowd after he had been beaten and scourged. And he's hoping probably at this point in time that maybe by looking at Jesus' appearance and seeing all these soldiers around, that we've dominated this guy, okay? We've humiliated him. Whatever he's been doing up to this point, you guys don't like, he's not going to do it again. Hopefully this will cause a crowd to have pity on, on Jesus and maybe set him free. And then, of course, they can crucify uh, Jesus Barabbas. But guess what? Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw Jesus, they cried out even more saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The language that's used here points to the frustration of Pilate with the Jews. And the Jews answer in verse 7, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. So that now the Jews here are referring to Leviticus 24, verse 16, where it says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. And now the phrase son of God, the title, as you and I know, was actually given to Caesar. So this was not applicable in their mind, the Romans, that is, uh, to Jesus. And so they're trying to use that language 
to find Jesus guilty because that was a title that was only rendered to Caesar, even though the Jewish people didn't agree with that anyway, because that was blasphemy. So in essence, if you're going to crucify Jesus for blasphemy, then good luck of the Jews trying to crucify Caesar for making those same things. So this had alarmed Pilate and it forced his hand to remove any threat that opposed Caesar. So when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid and he entered his headquarters again and he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate endeavors to get to the bottom of who Jesus truly is by asking him of his origins. Now this could be a glimpse into Pilate wondering if Jesus is a godlike character sent from the heavens. So in verse 10, he says to Jesus again, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So Pilate tries to flex his power over Jesus to take control of the situation. I think about at this stage, after he had already had him scourged and knowing of the reputation of Pilate, you, you think he would have to, he would have to flex his power, but Pilate doesn't know what to do at this point. So you can see this is a situation unlike any other he's ever been in. And then in verse 11, Jesus actually responds to Pilate and says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Even though Jesus stood before Pilate, beaten and scourged, he reminds Pilate that God is sovereign and no one can execute authority without his permission. Go to Acts 4, 27 through 28 or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. Now this phrase has the greater sin. Jesus is accusing Caiaphas of committing the greater sin that Herod and Pilate because Caiaphas of all people should have known of the innocence of Jesus. And yet he sends Jesus to these Gentile rulers. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now the Jews get personal with Pilate. In verse 7, they said Jesus broke their law, their religious law, but now they challenge Pilate that if he releases Jesus, he therefore isn't in agreement with Caesar. So they use a political law to get Pilate in line to what they wanted him to do. And then we're told in John 19, 13, so when Pilate heard these words, or Matthew 27 and verse 24, and saw that uh, he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning... And then back to John 19, verse 13, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha, Matthew 27, 24, and 25. He took water. He washes his hands before the crowd. He says, and he says to them, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Pilate seems at this point to come off as innocent himself. However, if you remember, let's go back. Pilate rejected the truth in John 18, verse 38. He pawned Jesus off to Herod in Luke 23, 6 through 12, who wanted to kill Jesus. He ignores the wishes of his wife in Matthew 27, verse 19. He ordered Jesus to be scourged, even though he knew he did nothing wrong, wrong in John 19, verse 1. He allowed Jesus to be mocked and humiliated and ridiculed in Matthew 27, 17 through 20. And he gave into fear in John 19, 8 and 12 and 13, which ultimately led Pilate to order that Jesus be crucified in John 19, verse 16. 
Another thing to mention, and when you look at this phrase, his blood be on us, the crowd and the chief priests and all the rulers, they placed an actual curse on themselves if they were wrong, according to Jeremiah 42, verse 5. So from this day forward, the Jews certainly suffered for their rejection of Jesus. So punishment was going to come upon Pilate, as we know historically happened to him after this fact, and so did the judgment fall upon the Jewish people that continued to repeat over and over again for Jesus to be crucified. In Luke 23, 24, and 25, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Now, you and I know that God is sovereign. He is ultimately sovereign over everything, over every affair. And Acts 2, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of the lawless men. So even though we see all the guilt on man's side, nonetheless, God was going to use this because Jesus Christ was here to fulfill prophecy and he was here to atone for the sins of mankind. We're told in John 19, 14 through 16, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So John mentions the time of day for Passover because he wants to point to Jesus as the Passover lamb. Isn't that amazing? And then verse 15, they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. I like what the new Bible commentary said regarding Pilate. They write, quote, Pilate was naturally not willing to release a dangerous man as well as to condemn an innocent one, but he thought it wiser to yield to the intensity of the demonstration. A later Jewish ruler is said to have characterized Pilate as inflexible, merciless, and obstinate. This is borne out by his behavior here. For the common view that he showed vacillation And weakness is an understatement. At the end of the day, Pilate showed no mercy, let alone justice, to an innocent man, end quote. And I think that's true. We don't have sympathy for Pilate. What he did showed no mercy, and he was completely inflexible, and he believed that his life was more important than the innocent life of Jesus. Now, we know through the death of, and burial Jesus and the resurrection on the third day, that it offers us life. And that's the point, I think, my friends, as we conclude this podcast today. And again, a lot we covered, but you see the intensity. I mean, when I was reading through it, hopefully maybe you got the same thing. You, you can sense, it's like almost like being there and you just worry and you feel so sorry for what Jesus was going through and how they treated him. But we're so thankful, aren't we? We're so thankful for what Jesus endured for your sake and for mine. And even though man steps in there and they try to do what man thinks is best, God's in control. And may that be a reminder to all of us. Right now, as I'm recording this, we are in the period of time where people are self-quarantined during this uh, coronavirus outbreak. Uh, There's some panicking going on with a lot of people. Up to this point, we've had several hundred thousand people infected with this virus. Uh, We've had up to 10,000 people die as a result. And even though this is going on in a lot of America and a lot of parts of the world are shut down and flights are not coming in and out 
and people are staying home and people are rushing to the grocery stores and they're trying to stock up and when they get there, there's nothing there. And every day the president and his staff and his cabinet are coming out and a lot of the health experts and they're saying, hey, look, these are things we need the American people to do. Even as we go through these kind of things and we don't know when the end's going to be here, when this is all going to stop, we trust the Lord, don't we? We believe in him. We have faith in him. So my friends, as I was sharing with some friends earlier uh, during this week as I'm recording this right now in March of 2020, we have to remember that when we are afraid, when we are struggling, when we think that evil is winning, we have to turn to God's word. And one of the greatest dosages that eliminates fear is the word of God. So may we continue as a body of believers around the world listening to this podcast May we continue to be grounded in God's word. And that's why I so appreciate the time I can have with you guys. It's almost like we're having a Bible study together, opening the Bible and studying the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. And to me, it's been life transforming and I pray it's been to you. So thank you, my friends, for listening. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.